Hey there, dog people of the internet. I'm Sarah Strumming, and this is Cog Dog Radio. Join me as I share my thoughts, experiences, and cases as I interview experts and answer your questions when it comes to the behavior of the dogs we live and play with. It's a new year and I have a news flash. Black lives still matter. I'm looking forward in 2021 to not only continuing to donate to causes that I believe in, but also to providing more of a platform for BIPOC voices in the dog world here on Cog Dog Radio. So stay tuned. I have some exciting news for you. I've teamed up with my friend and colleague Marissa Martino of Pause and Reward to present a three-part webinar series called The Connection Summit, Prioritizing the Human-Canine Bond for Successful Behavior Change. The series runs from February 23rd to March 9th. It airs Tuesday night each of those weeks at 5 p.m. Pacific. The first class is on the general mindset shift needed to allow focusing on the human canine bond to facilitate behavior change. The second is all about my concept, the four steps to behavioral wellness. And the third is Marissa's six principles of relationship building for dogs and their people. So I hope you'll join us and there's a registration link in the show notes. Today I'm bringing you my conversation with Kayla Fratt. She's a certified dog behavior consultant and the owner of Journey Dog Training in Missoula, Montana, and also online. She's worked in shelter behavior, she's worked with pet owners, and she's trained dogs for conservation detection, and that is exactly what we sat down to chat about. Here it goes. Hi, Kayla. Welcome to the podcast. Hi. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. I am so excited to finally chat. It's actually been a long time coming. Um, Kayla, will you get started by introducing yourself and sharing your pronouns? Yeah, absolutely. Um, my name is Kayla Fratt, and my pronouns are she, her, or I don't mind they, them. That's awesome. And you are in Missoula these mm-hmm. days, Missoula, Montana, a really lovely, honestly, little town. I love it. Um, yeah. And you have two Border Collies. Will you tell us a little bit about them? Yeah, absolutely. So I have Barley. He's a seven-year-old Border Collie, and he um, came from the shelter that I used to work for in Denver. He was given up for having too much energy. <laughs> um, shocking, shocking. Yeah, yeah. And he is just kind of my, my everything. He's also really been my, like, break into dog training dog. I was already into dog training, um, but, you know, it's so different to work as a rookie trainer and then to actually have your own dog. And he's also been my, like, willing to try everything rookie sport dog which has been awesome and then their border collies are so fun for that yeah he's so and he's so down for everything and I've been really lucky well lucky and I I was very picky when I brought him home but he is exceptionally stable and comfortable with a wide variety of environments that has just made him like he's got the drive and the stability that I think everyone is hoping for with their border collie Um, it's too bad he's neutered it really is. <laughs> That's a shame. Yeah. Um, and then and I, now you have a baby. Little I do. Yeah. So Niffler is, um, gosh, he's 102 days old. Um, I've been doing it. 
uh, I do a daily photo of him on my Facebook. Um, so that's why I know that. But so that's about 14 and a half, almost 15 weeks. Um, and he's from a lovely um, kind of small hobby breeder um, that I found through the FDSA um, available dogs group. Um, and my hope for him is that he grows up to be everything Barley is. We'll see how he fills those shoes. Um, but he's he's been really lovely and really fun so far. Uh, and we're mostly focusing on socialization right now. Just we're kind of getting to right the, at the end of that socialization window. So I'm trying mm-hmm. to get him into town more. And um, one of the, the tricky things about living in Montana is that I don't plan on living here forever. And... Um, at least intermediate, I'm going to end up in some more urban environments at some points and trying to make sure that he's prepared for that has been, I think, the challenging part about Montana plus pandemic for puppy raising. Very challenging. Hopefully you can rely on some solid genetics there. And yeah, I think you probably will be able to. Um, So Kayla, you wear a lot of hats like honestly more hats than like anyone I know, but the one, the one that I want to talk to you about today is training conservation detection dogs. What is a conservation detection dog? Yeah. So I kind of start out by saying like, you know what a search and rescue dog is, right? Or a bomb dog or a drug dog. Most people are relatively familiar with that. Mm -hmm. So on a broad level, a conservation dog is very similar. It's a dog trained to sniff out a specific target. Um, But instead of sniffing out heroin or drugs, well, heroin is a drug or, you know, bombs or what or a missing person, the dog is looking for a target that's somehow related to conservation biology. So that can fall into kind of three broad camps. And then there's another one that often gets lumped in with conservation dogs. So that can be the scat or sign of an endangered animal usually. So that might be like grizzly bear scat if you're trying to know how many grizzly bears are using the corridor between Yellowstone National Park and Grand Teton National Mm -hmm. Park. You could hire a dog to find the scat. Um, That can also be invasive um, plants or other like mollusks, those sorts of things. So the dog is sniffing out plants or mollusks in most cases, but they'll also do some insects, just kind of invasives in general. So that's a species that's coming from elsewhere in the world. And because it doesn't have any natural predators or competitors, they tend to run rampant and they can be a huge deal um, on an ecological level. The other big group in there is wildlife crime. So that might be dogs that are working in ports of entry or airports searching for live animals that are being trafficked or parts of animals that are being trafficked. So elephant ivory, snow leopard skins, live falcons are a big issue in some parts of the Middle East. Um, Wow. Yeah, I've never personally done any of that sort of stuff, but that also falls under that conservation dog umbrella. And then the fourth kind of arm that's somewhat related is kind of like farming pathogen sort of stuff. There's quite a bit going on there that often falls under conservation dog work because for the dog, the job is similar. But in my opinion, it's a little bit different because you are more related to like human industry versus protecting like a wild ecosystem. Fascinating. It's, you know, every time I think dogs can't get cooler, I learn more. (laughs) Yeah. And they, the first time I think I heard about this was um, several years ago, Ken Ramirez telling a story mm-hmm. about working with a team of dogs to locate sea turtle eggs. 
to yeah. save them from a gulf, the Gulf oil spill. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a great story that I cannot retell because no one tells a story like Ken Ramirez, so I'm not even going to try. But it was the first time that I went, oh, what an amazing merging of two worlds that I really care about, mm-hmm. right? Dogs, dog training, and then conservation of species that or just the planet in general right Mm -hmm. so so cool so how did you get involved in this because (laughs) it's so it's so rad and there's gonna be people that are like this is me this is what I want to do yeah so that was that was me um so I (laughs) um I went to college for ecology. I wanted to be Jane Goodall when I grew up. That was that was basically the goal. I wanted to go study animal behavior in the wild. Um, and I actually think that I first heard about conservation detection dogs while I was studying abroad in Ecuador. Um, one of my professors there mentioned it to me. They have some dogs working in the Galapagos to help prevent invasive species getting onto those islands because again, there are so few predators there. It can be a really big deal. Um, if anything makes it onto those islands. So I heard that and was just like, okay, well, that's my my life goal. This is what I want to do with my life. Um, I had been doing some dog training throughout college as a way to make money, just like basic loose leash walking skills. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that idea just kind of had to sit and incubate for a long mm-hmm. time because I didn't really know how to get into it. It's a very small field that is growing quickly. Um, But at the time, so this was back in probably 2014, um, there were very, very few organizations that I could find doing it. And when I reached out to some of them, you know, they just, it was hard to figure out how to break in. Um, So I dilly-dallied around with some other jobs right after college and then um, basically decided, okay, you know, I think it's time for me to go to grad school and I want to study conservation dogs. I think that's how I'm going to get into this field is I just get more degrees and eventually someone will hire me. (laughs) Um, And through the process, I was writing a grant to study the selection of conservation detection dogs in New Zealand. So they're actually, they have the oldest conservation detection dog programs in the world. As far as I know, they've got programs dating back to 1890 when there was a guy. Yeah. There's this guy, uh, Richard Henry, I believe is his name. He trained his dog to find, um, endangered ground nesting birds and then relocated them to islands that didn't have invasive rats and foxes on them because the rats and foxes were decimating these ground nesting birds. Um, So I wanted to go to New Zealand and in the process, I reached out to a bunch of conservation detection dog training organizations here in the U.S. um, asking them, you know, what are some of the biggest problems you guys have? What are the reasons that detection dogs drop, drop out of your program or flunk out of your program? Because of kind of thinking, like, if I know why they fail, then maybe we can think harder about how we're selecting them. Mm-hmm. And then fast forward about a year, I was a finalist for the grant, but I actually got an email from one of the organizations I'd been conversing with. And they said, hey, we've got an opening. We think we want you to take it. You know, are you willing to delay grad school and come work for us? So you said yes. I said Yes. So the short version of the story is I was basically really annoying and really dogged with trying to get in. (laughs) Um, Yes. Or you could say I got lucky, but it's definitely both. Um, And I think, like, hopefully people can take away that, like, it it is possible to break into this field. There are definitely other ways to do it. But um, because openings are so few and far between, I think it helped that I came to them trying to solve a problem for them versus trying to get a job. Because uh, they just, you know, they're most of them are small nonprofits. They just don't have openings necessarily. 
So you hear that, everybody? It's dogged determination. That's how you. Yeah. That's how you get what you want. Um, so, what species are you working to conserve right now, or have you worked to conserve? Yeah. So um, Barley and I right now are in the process of finding new jobs. We um, left the organization that I was with a couple months ago now, and I have a non-compete that I'm waiting to work through. But then after Mm -hmm. that, we we're going to be working through trying to find some new targets. But what he and I have worked on in the past are um, zebra mussels. So they're an invasive um, species of mussel from Ukraine and that area. Um, They're a huge issue in freshwater lakes in, I think, 46 of the 50 states. Um, And they, again, because they have no natural predators, they grow so thickly that they'll actually clog and break things like pipes and dams. They're filter feeders, so they eat all the food that baby fish need. They're just, they're a huge big deal. And they mostly get transported through your boat's ballast water. Or if your boat isn't completely drained, they're um, they're like the size of a pinky fingernail, even when they're fully grown. So it's really easy to miss them. And so the dogs actually help sniff the boats. So that was the first job Barley and I did. And it's still one of my favorite. I, as you can tell, I love talking about this job. Mm-hmm. So one of the things I really enjoyed with that particular gig is you get to talk to these anglers and talk to boaters and talk to them about the issue. And a lot of times people are a little irritated about having to go through that boat inspection before they get to launch and start fishing for the day. But as soon as you bring out this like big goofy border collie whose tail's wagging so hard, he hit himself in the face and he's like so excited to search their boat. It really like loosens a lot of people up and you get to talk about the amazing dog training and you get to talk about ecology, which just, couldn't make me happier. Yeah, that's actually fantastic. I think it really, um, it's nice to have a really not not intimidating team at all um, searching for, yeah. for anything. I mean, I know like when I'm in the airport and there's a TSA dog, there's a different feel if it's a Malinois versus mm-hmm. like a goofy cute labrador it's like yeah and the other dog one of the other two dogs that i handled most frequently was actually he was a big leggy malinois who flunked out of the green beret program and yeah you would get different responses from him Um, and he was also a different dog to work um, for me as a handler as well um and then so we've done that we've also done some black-footed ferret work um which is really challenging um from the dog and handler perspective. So black-footed ferrets are these these weasels native to the US. They were declared extinct in the 80s. Um, and then someone's dog actually brought a dead one to their front porch in, I believe, North Dakota. Um, it was like either Wayne North Dakota or Wyoming. Um, and the, the guy who saw it was like, uh, that's not a fox or you know anything else that I I understand he called the local game warden and the game warden was like, holy crap, these guys aren't extinct. Um, <laughs> and I believe at that time there was about 18 left. We're now up to a population that's between three and 600, kind of depending on how you count and whatnot, thanks to some captive breeding programs. Um, and the tough thing with these ferrets is they're primarily solitary unless they're living with their young, um, you know, raising babies. Mm-hmm. They live mostly underground and they live in prairie dog towns um, and they're mostly nocturnal. <laughs> so from a biologist's perspective, they're just incredibly hard to keep tabs on. And they're a high priority species because we want to know how these captive breeding programs are working. You know, are these ferrets that we're breeding and releasing into the wild actually succeeding? 
um, so where the dogs can come in there is luckily because they're weasels, they're quite stinky. Um, mm -hmm. And the dogs are then going through the prairie dog challenge and searching each of the holes and then hopefully alerting to where those ferrets are. And then this is where it also gets really cool and interdisciplinary because then the other biologist teams will come in and set up something like a camera trap to confirm whether or not the dog is correct. Wow. And also, I would just like to say what a training challenge to yeah. teach the dog to detect the one rodent rodenty thing yeah in the ground when there's a bunch of other ones and i my dogs i mean prairie dogs are like so fun right they're like so they, fun. they scream and then they run underground and they do like and sometimes so, they're so dumb too sometimes oh, they're they just the like they choose to, them, to run I... <laughs> from one hole to the other when they could have gone down the first hole they are <laughs> genetically engineered to make your dog's life harder i they are and you're training your dog to locate something that he's never going to come into contact with mm -hmm. he's never going to catch around these other things yeah um that's impressive that's yeah impressive. it's it's really really challenging there are certain aspects of it that are nice in that because prairie dog towns are generally relatively barren you can work your dog on a long line which mm -hmm. isn't an option um if you're working in like thick forest, a lot of times mm -hmm. the dog just really practically has to be off leash. Mm -hmm. um, so that certainly helps. Um, and then one of the things that I found super fascinating, and this is a little bit of a useless tangent, so I'll keep it short, but there are different species of prairie dogs that I found were harder or easier for my dog, depending on kind of their specific behavior within that species. Oh, that is, that's actually really interesting to me. That's, that's totally interesting. Um, yeah. Okay, so zebra mussels, mm -hmm. black-footed ferrets, anything yep. else? Yeah, and then right around the time that we were leaving, we were training on ivory for a really mm -hmm. cool study looking at the dog's ability to detect ivory in air that had been sucked out of a shipping container and blown onto like an array sort of thing, like a I can't explain very well, but the, the goal is right now, if you wanted to search a shipping container for ivory or other contraband, the dog would have to physically go up to each of those, which is really, mm -hmm. really difficult in like a huge port of Seattle or something, mm -hmm. you know, you've got these shipping containers stacked a dozen stories high. So instead they're pulling air out and blowing it onto a filter. That's the word. Mm -hmm. And then the goal is to see whether or not um, the dogs are able to detect that there. Um, so we had trained on ivory and shark fin as well for the purpose of that study. That's so interesting. Dog, I, I cannot, none of us can comprehend the olfactory experience that they are having. No, it is absolutely stunning um, to watch. <laughs> it's amazing. It's amazing. Yeah. Um, I mean, just some of the like medical detection, like being able to detect a single can a single cancer cell in billions of. I mean, it's it. My ignorance is showing because I don't actually do any of this stuff. But yeah, I it's couldn't amazing tell you what they can yeah. do. Yeah, and I think one of my one of the things that I always find so fascinating is watching. You know, as my dog is out running um, and working, and he'll hit odor in a cross breeze or something and stop so hard that his back legs come up off the ground and yes. then 
beeline over to it, you know, and we've been searching in like a hundred acre area or something. And just to watch that level of, it is so glaringly obvious to him and it is so easy for him. Obviously not all the time. Sometimes it's incredibly challenging, but those times where it's just like, it it looks like magic. <laughs> and I know it's not, but it's crazy. It, it does look like magic. And um, that actually brings me to a question that I didn't give you ahead of time, but that I do have, mm-hmm. which is because I have this um, question often, which is, how if you're just hiking is barley does barley understand that he's not working or like if you're just hiking and he happened upon a scent of something that he is trained to find would he alert to it because he is that i know people use the phrase um obedient to odor sometimes Mm -hmm. like is he is he that keyed into the odor that like he's never not working and if so like if he's never not working how do you work to have um you know really clean searching behavior Mm -hmm. other times when he when he is supposed to be actually working yeah so what i can i can speak to my dog um and kind of what i've observed with him and and also you know the other dogs that i've handled and lived with um because while i was still with the organization i lived with a variety of the dogs on and off through different you know, we'd take them on and train them for a specific thing, and then they'd go off to a different trainer. Um, generally, they know the difference between going for a hike or an off-leash run and working. Um, I suspect that if a dead ferret was in Barley's path, <laughs> or a, you know, a pile of zebra mussels washed up somewhere, I suspect he would alert to it or at least show a very strong change of behavior and then just kind of like look back and forth between Mm -hmm. it and me. He does, I I, I would expect him to do that. Um, But his behavior when he's actually searching is very different and it's quite context dependent. You know, we have a specific training bag that I actually keep locked up in a way that when Mm -hmm. I pull it out, I mean, the second I have it out, even if we're, you know, I'm going to put it in my bag and then we're going to drive somewhere. I mean, his pupils are fully dilated and he will not leave the bag. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And then it does have a very, very different search pattern versus when we hike and we hike and work in a lot of the same areas because I'm a lazy trainer and that's, I train where is convenient to me, which is also where I hike him. Um, And he very, very clearly can tell the difference. Well, that's good because I hike with somebody who trains um, human remains detection. And I'm always like, if your dog alerts out here in the woods, I'm out. Yeah. <laughs> yep. I'm like, I don't want her to find it. We we are hiking together in the woods. I listen to enough of those podcasts that I know this is how this happens. You just stumble upon. <laughs> yep. No, it's always the dog who finds it. And then you're a suspect. So congratulations. I know. And I'm like, I can't, I don't want any of this. I don't want anything to do with any of this. (laughs) Don't have time to be a suspect. (laughs) Um, Well, it's really good. And how cool is it that dogs are so contextual that we can actually make that work for us? Mm -hmm. Sometimes it works against us, I think. I think it often works against us. And so we only notice it when it's working against us. But when it's working for you, what a cool thing to just embrace. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, I know there are certainly times like when, because we would go on deployments for, you know, two to four weeks at a time. And I would pack a couple days ahead of time and Varley would see me pulling out the training bags and the training aids and all of, you know, his, his balls and all of those things. And like Felix, he has very, very big feelings about balls on ropes. Yeah. Um, oh my gosh. And it, it, it's, it's work for me to figure out how to pack ahead of time without mm-hmm. getting him to this point where he'll just like lie next to my suitcase waiting um, and barely breathing, um, which doesn't work if we're not going to leave for two days. Yeah. So maybe you need to be a less obsessive packer. Packing. Yeah, yeah, I think, well, and what probably would work best is if I just pack the training aids at the very end, or a lot of times what I would just do is put everything in the car, just load up the car a couple, of, and then he, he's fine again. It's, yeah, it's, it's really cool that there are so many clear cues about it. Mm-hmm. And I encourage people to do that on purpose. Um, yes, I very intentionally created like a specific training bag that we only use for this. Yeah. So going to work for an established organization, while you've already got a rich training background, you've done a bunch of shelter work, um, you've done a lot of dog training, may present some challenges. And I say that as a control enthusiast myself that cannot, mm-hmm. can barely imagine such a thing. Um, were there hiccups in merging your training background with the organiz- with what the organization needed you to do? Yeah, definitely. I think it was ultimately a big part of why we parted ways. And I spent a lot of time thinking about, you know, do I really want to be like Michelle Pouliot, who is the person who really helps bringing, bring more like humane hierarchy and force-free positive reinforcement, you know, whatever labels we want to put on it, training to more and more of these working dog worlds. Because even relatively progressive working dog organizations, and I would count my former employer among them, are not on the same page as most of your podcast listeners, I assume, um, and mm-hmm. certainly most people who are really deep into like the Fenzy type world. Mm-hmm. Um, and it definitely was a challenge. I will say I was lucky that they they knew that ahead of time. It was part of my interview um, well before they hired me that we talked about training methods. We talked about differences. We talked about how to handle those. And they were really very open with me, um, trying different things or experimenting in different ways with my own dog. Um, although there, yeah, there's certain, so I have used an e-collar, um, a shock collar, and um, that was not something I had planned on ever experimenting with. Um, and experimenting with is the wrong phrasing, um, but that was not something I had ever wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but did in the context of my employer. And honestly, in retrospect, I'm glad I did because now I've had that experience and I can speak to what that was like. I was able to do it with dogs that were very well conditioned to it or well used to it. Mm -hmm. Um, And Mm -hmm. I still am able to articulate why I didn't like it and why I don't find it useful in the situations that we used it in. And finally, I think one of the things that I did and part of why I was willing to do the shock collar stuff with them, which again was very minor overall, was because specifically with how conservation detection dogs work, you are asking a very high drive dog, which often the ball drive and the hunt drive correlates with prey drive. Um, And we can deconstruct all those constructs if we want in a minute. you're asking that dog to work off leash in an area where you know wildlife is. And in the context of a dog 
any other dog, I would recommend that dog being on leash or not being put in that situation. But it is a very specific type of job. And I, if there is ever a case for a shock collar, I would say that it might be in the context of a highly trained professional conservation dog. And I think there are other ways, but sure. I think, you know, I, I think that is one of the one of the places where it's like, yeah, you know, if you've got professional trainers and highly skilled, highly driven dogs that have to be off leash around wildlife, it is it is kind of the poster child of where you could see a shot collar being a reasonable option. Absolutely. And um, if I'm understanding correctly, too, you're relying on funding that may also have a stipulation in there about the level of control that is put on the dogs. Yes. And those, you know, the the organizations that might be supplying said funding would just feel better about an e-collar being on the dog. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There are uh, many of the contracts that were offered require that the dog is wearing an e-collar. Um, and again, I, I don't I don't think that's crazy. It is, I'm not happy about it. I'm not comfortable with it. I didn't like it. I also didn't think they were nearly as useful as our, as our advertised. Um, Mm. <laughs> but uh, I think sometimes there's an illusion attached to this remote control in your hand yes. a little bit um, because I certainly I am not for the banning of that tool I have it is also a tool I've never used Kayla and when you're talking about being grateful that you did use it um, it's something that I think is kind of missing in my understanding of a lot of things. It's not something I'm going to pick up tomorrow because I don't have a dog that I would do it to. Um, yeah. But I, I learned how to do everything else. Yeah. And I can speak so intelligently about all of those other things that I think sometimes it's a deficit for me that I can't speak as intelligently about that. It's, And I think, you know, it's important for all of us. And we learned from the Michelle Pouliot episode that I did that I will link for you all, um, how important it is to not just walk in and vilify anybody for their tools, but instead to offer other tools. And when they start to see those tools being effective, the basically what you want to do is make the other tool obsolete. You want to make the e-collar obsolete. You don't want to... Mm -hmm. um, just say you can't use it because it's mean. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And I think it very, one of the other um, trainers at the organization that was hired shortly after me also was she, I, I, we might have all met at Clicker Expo at some point. She's also pretty far along the positive reinforcement end of things. And we had the two dogs that were most reliable with their off leash recall and directionals. And, you know, we did a fair bit of shutting up and showing off. And, um, you know, I'm really grateful for that opportunity. Um, and how, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm glad that I've had that, that chance to do that learning. I'm glad that I've had the chance to use that tool, even though it was, I, it was literally a single day and I was really unhappy through most of it. I'm certainly no shock collar expert, um, but I've done it and I'm, I'm glad. And I can now point to those experiences. Um, and, and even, um, so, you know, specifically what we were struggling with was getting a dog to continue working through a prairie dog town, unsurprisingly. Mm-hmm. I think that in the future, what I would do is intentionally set up training scenarios near a prairie dog town where the dog can work in a really high find environment and experience the, oh, I see the prairie dog, I want to go get it. Oh, wow, there's a find right here. Now we're going to play ball. 
and yes. really hammer that and gradually layer in the prairie dogs in um yes in a more concerted way sometimes you know if you're charging people a daily fee to be there as a working dog person i understand you might not have that opportunity but what i found was you can't have your shot collar turned on as it's dangling off of your backpack in the field because you will eventually bump it and shock your dog for no reason so you have to have it turned down <laughs> or turned off um there's going to be a delay in communication because you need to actually turn it up or exactly yeah, yeah. So and i've told to this story on all the time what's that it needs to like be in your hand all the time which is not practical no no i mean it's kind yeah. of like if you like if you've got a button clicker in your hand and you're trying to fumble with something else like at some point you're you gonna accidentally it. click it all the time yeah um and um the specific scenario that i've already told this story on K uh canine conversations um but I was working Jack's, the Malinois, and um, he actually put his head down a burrow, which he's supposed to be doing because he's supposed to be checking those burrows for ferrets, and he came up with something in his mouth. So, you know, again, my shot collar is turned all the way down, and then I'm trying to figure out, like, as I'm panicking, cranking it to the correct level and not accidentally mm -hmm. going up to 100. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it ended up being a piece of fabric. It was nothing. But if had that been a prairie dog or a black-footed ferret, I was not able to react quickly enough, even though I was watching him like a hawk and I had it right there and I had it ready. It, it would not have been fast enough to save that animal. Um, yeah. It's, it's, it's a it, good it, anecdote to kind of talk about the, um, the shortcomings. There are shortcomings yeah. in everything that we do. Yeah. Um, and I would argue that those dogs should be worked in muzzles. Um, that's what I was going to say is what about another, what about a management tool that means they can't get anything in their mouth if that's the issue? Yeah. Yeah, and, and, you know, obviously trained to wear muzzles happily and not paw them oh, yes. off. Yes. Because obviously you can't just strap a, a, a muzzle on a working dog and turn it loose. They're going to get it off. Um, if they want to, for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and I would also argue that airing on the side of lower prey drive breeds also makes sense. So, I, you know, working uh, Midwest Conservation Dogs works really heavily with Labradors, um, rogue detection teams works pretty heavily with healers. I think, and I obviously prefer border collies, but um, erring towards some of these breeds that are less well known for having really high prey drive is also a wise thing in this particular field. You know, Malinois are great for a lot, but these mm -hmm. dogs that really like to chase things, grab them, and bite them, mm -hmm. you know, they have a more intact prey predatory sequence, might not be as good of a fit for this field. I think that's also smart, like thinking about um, why is it so hard for this dog and is it something about him and who he is that makes it so hard and in which case maybe it's not the right game for him yeah. to be playing. You said something really interesting that I want to just briefly touch on because to me this is the most cool, fun thing about any kind of scent work mm -hmm. is using the scent itself to shape the behavior that you want. Yeah. Um, and the most scent, I honestly, compared to all my other dog training experience, I have like very little amount of experience here. I train handler scent detection for utility for obedience, for AKC obedience. And then I've done some tracking and I've done like a tiny bit of nose work. The most fun, cool, interesting thing to me is using the scent itself to shape the behavior that you want. So like in my most experience, it would be training scent articles for utility for the AKC ring and teaching the dog to search the entire pile 
by strategic placement of the scented article through your training yeah. process is fascinating. And then I've heard of things like what you just talked about, um, where you're saying, well, I think it's smarter to train this dog that proximity of prairie dogs indicates to you higher likelihood of find. Yeah. Right. So that they are actually searching harder anytime there's proximity to prairie dogs. Yeah. Can you talk about any, do you have any more examples of that or just any thoughts on that? Cause I think it's the coolest mm-hmm. thing. Yeah. I mean, so I, and I can think of some more, like maybe more applicable answers um, mm-hmm. in that I'm training Niffler right now. You know, as I said, he's like 14 and a half weeks old to do some really baby scent work stuff. So he's literally like searching for hot dogs. Um, and what we're working on now is starting to teach him that the hides can be anywhere. So we've been working in boxes for a long time. And then like three training sessions ago, the hot dogs started being just outside of the boxes, but nearby. So I'm watching him learn to, you know, he's checking the boxes, checking for um, where they've always been in the past. And then he catches that scent and is like, oh my gosh, it's right here instead. Um, And then I'm gradually increasing his search area and building up his stamina by asking him to search for things that are a little bit further away. And what you know, we're going to start building up to is, you know, can we teach him to move over obstacles or push into corners or climb up onto something to find a hide that's a little bit over his head height by placing those hides strategically. And um, I think one of the things, and I know Stacey Barnett has been talking about this a ton mm-hmm. with her. She's been on this deep accessible hide um, train for a while. That's been really fun to think about, but helping your dog build this environmental resilience by placing yeah. the hide somewhere strategically so that the dog, you know, gets to walk over a wobble board or a fit bone or some crinkly paper in order to get to that hide um, or push under a bed. Um, And, you know, I think one of the trickiest things as you're thinking about this, because it's such a cool concept and such a cool way to help your dog build this environmental resilience, is how bad we all are at predicting odor. Um, and how it's going to move around the world. I'm currently taking yes. um, a scent theory and odor dynamics class with Fancy Dog Sports that I believe with ran Lucy, several months yeah. ago. With Lucy Newton, it is a fabulous, yes. fascinating, odor. fascinating course. Yeah, um, check it out next time it's running. I've had it in my library for a while and I'm just finally mm-hmm. working through it now. Um, but it is really hammering home for me how you can accidentally really place something that is way above your dog's skill level Mm. just because you're not aware of where the drafts are in your home or anything like that. So that is, I think, what is hardest for me uh, as a handler in this, this field is working with something that I can't see, I can't smell, I can't touch, I can't feel, and still trying to be fair to my dog about how I set up a training scenario so that it's, you know, the uh, the right amount of challenge. Yes, and strategically increasing that challenge, just like any other training, in such a way that the dog's not learning through failure, the dog's learning through these successively more difficult wins. Yeah, yeah. And even, you know, sometimes it, sometimes it's fine. You know, the other day I was setting up a hide for Barley, and my goal was to make him work for a little bit longer. You know, I wanted to put up like a half hour, 45 minute long search. And in between when I put out the odor and when I went to go get him and bring him out to work, 
the wind speed changed. <laughs> so it went from him working kind of across a cross breeze and we were going to work down this country road and then he was going to have to hit it and then follow it as like a T away from the road. Mm-hmm. That was my plan. The wind totally switched and the wind was basically just blowing the odor straight at his face. So, and I've got video of it. I release him and what should have been like a 30 minute search literally took like two minutes because he just like took off like a shot. He knew exactly where it was. He was blowing straight at him. Wow. Yeah. Cause it was just blowing straight at him and it was just like, well, okay. You know, it's kind of <laughs> best laid plans. <laughs> yeah. There's nothing you can do about it. it, it I, I mean, I like sometimes, and then I also dabble in agility and it's like, well, at least my dog walk's not going to like accidentally move on me. Um, <laughs> if I'm trying to work on my like stopped contacts. Certain I, level of predictability that can definitely work for you in, in a lot of ways, which is why the scent stuff is so cool and interesting and why pretty much universally dogs take to it because Mm -hmm. it's natural it's easy for them it's something that they are already good at we just have to learn how to shape it the way that we specifically want them to do it yeah um what is the most rewarding thing about this job about being in this field I think for me, the the coolest part about it, and particularly, and my former employer was awesome about this, they work with rescue dogs, um, and they take rescue dogs that are often on euthanasia lists, wow. and then work with them for this. So they're, they're specifically looking for dogs that have this really, really over-the-top level of ball drive, toy obsession, whatever you want to call it. And sometimes that comes, um, particularly in some of our shelter dog populations, with, with baggage. And it was my absolute favorite thing in the world to watch these dogs that may have been at risk of euthanasia. A couple of them have bite histories or are really dogs that I just, I cannot see them being successful in any any home or any environment other than exactly where they are. And seeing them not just like surviving, like they're not just like making it through, but they're actually like f- literally like furthering the frontiers of science <laughs> was just like there's there's nothing to compare to you know like it's it's cool with barley to watch him do nose work or agility Mm -hmm. and like i love those things as well but to watch him love something so much and know that it's actually also really making an impact is really really powerful um i imagine it's similar to a lot of the search and rescue sort of stuff in that that way where it's like your dog loves this job you get to go out and do it every day and your dog you know, thinks it's the best game in the world, but you're also really helping people out. It's, it's really cool. That is really amazing. And how cool to take those shelter dogs that are probably your dogs that, you know, that we always say, it's a very cliche phrase, need a job, right? Mm-hmm. So that's why they couldn't function in whatever their home was, because they can't just be a couch ornament. They're not that kind of dog. Mm-hmm. And then you put them in a situation where they are put to work and now they're thriving and now they are, you know, you, you almost wouldn't even know that they weren't functional in some situation yeah. because they are so functional in this situation. Yeah. Yeah. And even the ones, you know, I can think of a couple dogs where, you know, they're still, they're still kind of weird, but unlike a lot of other jobs, they can do it even if they don't like other dogs. They can do it even if they don't mm. like people. You know, I, I was describing the zebra muscle work and we had some dogs that weren't cut out for that. You know, there's part of a reason, there was a reason that Barley and I were one of the teams that did a lot of that because he's so happy-go-lucky. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of dogs out there that 
would be amazing working dogs, but they can't cut it as a bed bug detection dog in a hotel because people freak them out or whatever it is. But with the conservation dog work, a lot of these dogs can really, they can handle it. You know, Barley and I are interviewing for a position doing some windmill, um, wind farm carcass detection. So we're basically Mm going to be out in the Midwest just looking for bird and bat carcasses. We're not going to see anybody. Like, if he had big feelings about people or dogs or, you know, I mean, obviously the windmills could probably be upsetting to some dogs, but um, he could still do this job. And that's not true with a lot of other working dog um, roles. Definitely, definitely not true for, I'm going to say, most of the jobs that I can think of, like most of the working jobs that I'm aware of um, are actually pretty, pretty difficult, pretty hard on the dogs as far as what they have to tolerate in order to get to work. So that's the most rewarding thing. What's the hardest thing? I think the hardest thing, and particularly for me, is figuring out how to balance. Like, I am so obsessed with my dog's welfare and making sure that he has the best life in the world. And then also showing up and knowing that you've made a promise to do a job um, and working Mm. through that. I, there, there are certainly ways to do it well within my ethical comforts and personal comforts, but it, it's it's a lot of pressure. You know, it's it's a little bit, it's very different, I would argue, versus, you know, and, and people struggle enough with scratching from, uh, you know, weavers at agility because their dog is missing weave pull entries. Um, you know, when you've got someone who is paying or has already paid a ton of money for a big research project. And you might have funders as big as like, you know, literally like the World Wildlife Fund or something. Expecting you and your dog to perform, there is certainly pressure to push through that search or push through really difficult environmental conditions. Um, And, you know, we can think about things like heat stroke or the danger from snakes or any of those sorts of things. They're all present. and, you know, just doing what you can to make sure that your dog is prepared and that you are ready to be your dog's advocate and that you've communicated with your partners, um, funding partners and work partners, that, you know, the dog's welfare comes first and that if the dog isn't well, the dog can't do the job. Um, it, it, it's certainly doable, but it can really be challenging, particularly like, you know, I'm, I'm young um, and I'm, I'm new-ish in the field and it's, it's hard to figure out how to stand up for your dog and for yourself in a way that is tactful and professional, but still really adheres to what you guys need. I did not think about that. I did not think about the fact that the things I do with my dogs, I am at hundred percent liberty to scratch. I can sign up for an agility run and I can not do it. If I want to, I can leave the ring if things are not going well. Um, mm-hmm. I encourage people to do that. And people have a very hard time with it a lot of the time for no really good reason. Whereas you've got like really good reasons to maybe not scratch when or or say we can't do this right now. Um, That would be a lot of pressure. I think that would be hard on me as well if I were involved in that. Um, Kayla, this has been super fascinating. Has there, is there anything that we didn't hit that you want to talk about? I think, I think people are probably going to want to know how they could potentially get involved um, or how they could start. I'm, I think there's a couple easy things to do. So if you do have a dog that, well, I mean, if you've got a dog that has a nose, 
um, <laughs> you can you can experiment with this. So you can start out just with like basic nose work odors. There's no harm. Barley and I actually, our main training is with birch odor right now because since leaving my job, I no longer have access to, I don't have ivory. Um, I'm not even <laughs> sure if it's legal for me to have ivory. I was going to say probably not. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm pretty sure I'm not allowed to have that um, unless maybe it was an heirloom. Um, so there's, that's a great way to start. If you can build your chops in competitive nose work or any of those other sorts of scent things, it is so much easier to transfer over. That's how Barley and I first got started. And that's how I realized how much we enjoyed this together. I actually didn't want to sign up for my first nose work class. I wanted to be in agility and there was a huge wait list. <laughs> and I was like, okay, fine, I'll take nose work. And then like, look at me now. Um, <laughs> so that's a great place to start. And then Get connected with local research and conservation groups in your area. So a lot of the people I've been speaking to about upcoming contracts are connections at local universities or through friends of friends or, you know, I've got a bunch of friends who are in grad school for ecology because I, all of my friends are biologists. Um, biologists or dog trainers are both, ideally. Um, <laughs> yes. But, you know, show up to a local weed pulling day and help out and get involved and figure out what their needs are. Because, like, uh, well, oh, that was the other project that I forgot to mention. Barley and I have also worked on Dyer's Woad, which is an invasive species of plant. And where the dog is really helpful there is they actually have weed crews go out first, pick all the weeds and destroy all the weeds that they can find. And then the dog goes through later and finds all the little seedlings that the people missed. Because to the dog, the seedling still smells enough to find, but it's too short to poke up above the rest of the prairie grass. So anyway, if you want to get involved, get to know the local um, groups in your area. I do believe Rogue Detection Teams, which is a conservation dog group, has some online courses. Um, it won't be live by the time this podcast goes up, but canineconservationists.org is going to be my site. And I am planning on ultimately offering some courses and actively looking for people to partner with um, because it takes a village. If a dog rips a toenail, I can't just be like Kayla and Barley um, taking contracts and then hoping that Barley never, ever, ever gets injured. Um, yeah. So there for might sure. be a bunch of opportunities to get involved down the road, but... Well, that's fantastic. So that site may not be live yet, but we'll go the ahead site and link is, it. It's live. Um, okay. Well, we'll go it, ahead and link just, it. Yeah. It's just not a thing it's not quite complete. yet, but it's, uh, it's there. <laughs> the, site, um, the site exists. The stuff that it's advertising are still yeah. in progress, but the site exists. We'll link that. We'll also link rogue detection dogs. Mm -hmm. And um, where else? Can people find you if they want to talk For to me, you? Um, you can find, um, I've also got canine conservationists on both TikTok and Instagram. And that's the letter K number nine conservationists. Um, you can also find Barley and I at Collies Without Borders on Instagram. Barley and Niffler and I, I keep forgetting about the baby. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then my actual training business is journeydogtraining.com. Excellent. Kayla, thank you so much for having this conversation with me. Yeah, thank you. I'm always happy to talk about it. So I hope this gets some people excited and uh, sparks some good conversations and good thoughts. We need more people doing this work. I think it will. I think you're going to get some people knocking on your door after they hear this one. I sure, sure hope so. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe in the podcast app of your choice. And if you're interested in supporting this podcast, as well as joining the Cog Dog Radio community, 
head over to patreon.com slash cogdogradio and become a patron for as little as $4 a month. I hope to see you there. Cheers. Cheers.